jump into uh, Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read a bunch of scripture, and then I'm going to lay foundation, and then I'm going to make a couple points. It's, this is going to be really long or really short, one of the two. So <laughs> Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start at verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? So, Caesarea Philippi, we're going to get into details about this, but to get you caught up, to, so we jump from 13 to 16. Jesus has been teaching, he's been walking, his disciples, there's been, uh, Jesus has fed the multitude, and now he takes a trip and says, we're going to Caesarea Philippi. He takes them on a boat, gets them off a boat, and starts heading to Caesarea Philippi. He says to them, hey, who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, this is, Son of Man is the phrase that Jesus used to, for himself. That's the title he most prefers. So when you hear Son of Man, Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? They, they respond. Uh, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I could spend an entire message just on that. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Uh, this is, see, this is important. Because some of you in here have come to a place this morning, and you've heard about Jesus. You've heard what people say about Jesus. You've heard about how people have a relationship with Jesus. You've heard about this, this thing called Christianity uh, and, and all these things. And, and you've heard about it. And you've heard what people believe. But who do you say that he is? That's the important part. So Peter jumps in and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He throws a double whammy at Jesus. You are the Christ, which in most translations is translated the Messiah. You are Messiah. And this is the first time that we see this uh, that is a declaration in, in real time that he is the Messiah. So there, there are other times where the Matthew will put, portray onto the situation that Jesus is trying to show him that he's the Messiah. But this is the first time in real time. That they say, you're the Messiah, you're Christ, and you are the son of the living God. Going to the next, going on, he says, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. This is one of those moments, Jesus has been teaching his disciples for three years at this point. And so finally, they get it. And like, if you're a teacher in the room, you know what it's like. If you have toddlers or you had kids going into elementary and you're working with your kid to get something, um, right now, my daughter's working on some reading, and her sight words are fry words, and she's got to get the 500 fry words. And so when she gets them, it's like, yeah, wow, you got it. And especially those hard ones, like, you know, it's like, she got it. And we have a little party, and we get excited, and because she got it. Now, this is Jesus getting excited because Simon Peter, representing the group, goes, you got it. It's finally sunk in. Simon, you're blessed. And now that word blessed there means he's full of joy. We'll talk about that in a little bit more. He says, but uh, this was not real to you. Uh, the flesh and blood did not, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who's, like, this is like pep talk. Ready? Come on. Somebody's ready for some football. Uh, you know, come on, we got to get geared up. Uh, come, come on, Browns are facing the Patriots. They're most likely going to get destroyed, but come on. Like, the gates of hell. I mean, how, how appropriate is that? I mean, the gates of the cheaters shall not prevail. Come, anybody? No? Okay. <laughs> Nobody? Come on. Uh, <laughs> uh, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall, not be, bound, shall, uh, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. <sighs> There's a lot. Okay. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
From that time, Jesus began to show that his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the, from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So now there's a big transition taking place here. This is like graduation day for the disciples. So far, they've been hearing and they've been seeing and they've been more learning, but they haven't fully grasped. Now they get it and Jesus goes, okay, you got it. Graduation time. Now I'm going to show you how you live it out. There's a transition. He's now we leave here and we go to Jerusalem. And when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to have to die. Simon Peter throws a fit. He's like, no way. I'm going to kind of paraphrase. Throw it up there. I'm going to paraphrase what Simon Peter says. This cannot happen. It will not happen. I'm not going to let it happen. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Like, how would you like to be called Satan by Jesus? He says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. You're a hindrance to what I'm trying to do. And he's, so he uh, uh, kind of says, hey, get out of my way. Then he goes into this piece. Uh, he says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses the, his life for my sake will find it. And for whatever will be, it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, uh, and forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this is a fun verse. And it is like my nerd, uh, like everything within me is like pumped and excited because there is all this stuff in here. That last verse is kind of like the, the, the summation of what I've been trying to get you to understand throughout this series is that the kingdom of heaven is not something that's far away and will happen by, by and by, someday, soon, we're going to go fly away. No, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says over and over, is near. And then he dies and says the kingdom of heaven is here. And then he tells us, hey, you're supposed to pray this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you're supposed to be joining the story and making heaven on earth. That's your responsibility. And over time, gradually, heaven, the old kingdom is going to be erased by the new kingdom. And this is the responsibility of the church. So this is where we're going. So I'm going to go there again because that's where this ends. So let's rewind, go back to the beginning. Caesarea Philippi is where they are. Wow. That's, I don't even know what happened. Caesarea Philippi is where it... What is happening? I, I'm, <laughs> the, the computer's about to reboot. Uh, so, uh, Caesarea Philippi uh, is... Uh, where, uh, yeah, this is where it all begins. So let me give you a little context to Caesarea Philippi because this isn't like when, the, when a Jew is hearing this story, this isn't like, oh, Caesarea Philippi. We read it like place and then we keep going. They see it as something powerful and something amazing. And so here we see this taking place. And I, I want to give you some context because it begins all the way back when the tribes of Israel came in. So the tribes of Israel, uh, let's go. Are you ready? Okay, let's go to Judges uh, chapter 8. It says, Then when uh, Micah's idols and his priests, the men of Dan, came to the town of Laash, whose people were peaceful and secure, they attacked with swords and burned the town to the ground. There was no one to rescue the people, for they lived a great distance from, the, from Sidian and had no allies nearby. This happened to the, uh, in the valley near Beth Rehob. Can you go to the Joshua verse? Joshua, we'll come back to that map. But the tribe of Dan 
had trouble taking possession of their land, so they attacked the, the, the town of Laash. They captured it, slaughtered its people, and settled there. They renamed the town Dan after their ancestors. So what just happened? Here's what happened. Let me show you the map. When the, it, when the Israelites came into the promised land, they were given each tribe. There's 12 tribes. Each tribe was given an area of land that they were supposed to inhabit, which means there were people living there. They had to kick those people out. So each tribe gets their land, and you can see it's, very, it's described in detail um, in the Bible, in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Each area is given to them. Dan is given this piece of land. So the tribe of Dan, this is the nation of Israel, the tribe of Dan is given this piece. So they go there, and Joshua describes it and says, hey, they, they tried really hard to take the land, and, uh, and they, didn't, they didn't get, well, there's some debate whether they tried real hard. They couldn't get the land. They couldn't kick the Philistines out. They kept dealing with us over and over again, so they left, and they said, we're leaving here. We're going to find some good land. So they send some scouts out, and they end up leaving Dan, and they go all the way up to this area over this brown area right there that's not inhabited by any of the Israelites. You see that town called Dan, that little town called Dan? That's Leish. They attack it. They overtake it. In doing so, they rename it Dan. On their way there, they pass a guy named Micah. Micah is a very rich man who has idols. On the way, they, they decide, hey, M Micah, you can't have these idols. And he had a Levite there that was acting as a priest. They take his idols. They take his Levite, which is the pr uh, position of a priest in the Israel nation. They say, you're going to come with us, and you're going to set up our own religion in this area. So not only do they leave the land that was promised to them, they abandon the God that promised them the land. And this is important. So they leave that area. They go to Laash where they decide, that, hey, this land is beautiful, we can beat the people real easy, and we're going to set up our own area of worship. So that's what they do. Now, later on, you find out that the, the, kingdoms, uh, uh, the kingdom of Israel is established. We have a king. The first one is Saul. Not very good. David's the second one. He's a little bit better. Uh, man after God's own heart. There's some good things going on with him. But he has a son named Solomon who pretty much messes everything up. Because after Solomon, the kingdom divides in two. So there's the uh, southern kingdom. Sorry, can you go with me? Or, yep. So here we are. I'm jumping through all this really fast because there's lots of groundwork i got to lay for you. Because this all matters to where we're going. Judah is in the southern part. There's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the temple is built. Everybody that's an Israelite who is a Jew goes to Israel to worship. When they divide, uh, Rehoboam is in the south. Jeroboam is the king of the north. Jeroboam goes, wait a minute, if everybody keeps going back to the south to worship, they're going to abandon me and join the south. So I'm going to set up two, two, my own two sites. And I've got scripture, it's in your notes, I'm going to keep going. Uh, so he sets up two sites. One is called Dan in the north, and the other one is Bethel in the south. He says, you know what, I want it to be a little bit more convenient for you to worship God. So why don't we set up two different places where you guys can go so you don't have to go back to Jerusalem. It's, that's a lot of work. So he sets up this place, and in that place, in both of them, he sets up uh, these idols of golden calves. Now, that's huge. I, I wish I had more time because you go back to when the Israelites came across the Red Sea, and Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the commandments. When he comes down, Aaron has created golden calf for them to worship. And Jeroboam goes back to that same kind of worship and says, hey, that was actually, in, the, in Scripture, it says that he told them that this was the God that brought them out of Egypt. He replaces 
God and the worship that was supposed to take place in Jerusalem with this place in Dan and Bethel. Now, I'm going to focus on Dan because you're going to see in just a minute, Dan actually turns out to be Caesarea Philippi. So, we've got all that. Now, let me, let me give you some, a better context. So, here we are. Let me do it real fast. Here is a, a back picture. We're going to zoom in. There is the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. Yep, there she goes. <laughs> and that... You, <laughs> Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, zoom in. I, I, sorry, I, I changed it on her, so it's my fault. So there's the Dead Sea. Here's Jerusalem, where everybody's supposed to be worshiping. There's the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee. So most people don't realize there's two pieces to the Jordan River. There's the northern part that flows into the Sea of Galilee, flows out of the Jordan River, and goes to the Dead Sea. Nothing comes out of the Dead Sea. So we have that all together. Now, let's, where we're at is actually in the northern part. So remember where Jerusalem is. The Sea of Galilee, zoom in. So here we are in the northern part. So Jerusalem's way down here. There's the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River. This is, this is where when you read the Gospels, the majority of what you read takes place around the Sea of Galilee. On the uh, west side, or the east side, is uh, the Capitalists. On the west side is all of Israel's area, where there's people that are still, that's where the majority of the Jews live. So all of what you have, all the, all the uh, disciples are from the Galilean area. Now, he takes them. The majority of what Jesus does happens in this little circle. The last part of his life, the last uh, few weeks, is when he goes to Jerusalem. That's the majority of what we all remember. But majority of his life and his teachings took place around the Sea of Galilee. Now, we're going to go to the north part. Just, uh, there's Mount Hermon. At the very base of it is this place called Caesarea Philippi. Laish, Dan, it's all the same place. So when you hear Caesarea Philippi, it's the same location that the, Dan, uh, the tribe of Dan left and moved to. It's the same place that was Laish. Now, why is it such a cool place? Let me show you a picture of what it looks like. This is what it looks like today. This is where Caesarea Philippi was. Now, I've asked them to turn down the lights because I want you to see this and get a real good visual of what Jesus was taking his disciples to. We're in the very northern point. There is, this is the furthest that Jesus takes his disciples. He takes them to this place. Why does he take them to Caesarea Philippi out of the way? It's a beautiful place. I've been here. It's gorgeous. It's lush. The, there's springs that come out of the ground. It's amazing. Now, pagans, the, the, so at the time of the Old Testament, when Dan, Dan took their worship and moved there, they, at the same time, was going on Baal worship. You read the Old Testament, you hear Baal over and over and over again. Baal is being worshipped at this place. And all that's taking place. So here's some pictures of what it looks like. You can see, here's, go back one, sorry. Here's a cave. At the time of Jesus, this water was coming out of that cave. There's a, there was a large temple built right here. Go, go to the next script, the picture, right in front of here. So this is, the uh, water would have been coming out of this this was a temple, and each of these niches were gods, statues of gods. They have these statues. They uh, have them in museums. The British Museum has one of them. Uh, there's uh, one in Israel. They have the, the gods there. So there, that's what it looks like. Go to the next picture. This is from the, the angle. There's the cave. You can see the niches. This has all been, uh, they've found and dug this all out, and it's amazing what you can find. This is one of the most amazing sites in all of Israel. So you go here. You see this. Next picture. There's one of the niches. Go ahead, I think, finish it out. 
this is from the, up from the hill, taking a picture down. There's the cave that the water would have been coming out of. Okay, here's, all this is so you can get a picture of what's taking place here. Baal worship happened here. Baal was a, fertil- uh, uh, a fertility god. They would worship him in disgusting ways. They would sacrifice babies to him to hopefully have more babies and for him to come back to life. And so they would throw babies into this, uh, this place and they would worship him. Joseph, uh, Josephus, who was a historian, a Jewish historian, at the time uh, was a Jesus, contemporary with Jesus, wrote this about this location of what it looked like. He says, Where is a top of a mountain that is raised to an immense height, and at its side, beneath or at its bottom, a dark cave opens itself. So he's talking about Mount Hermon, and at its base is this. Within which there is a horrible precipice that descends abruptly into a vast depth. It contains a mighty quantity of water, which is immovable. And when anybody lets down anything to measure the depth of the earth beneath the water, no length of cord is sufficient to reach it. Now the fountains of, Jor- of, of Jordan rise out of the roots of this cavity outwardly, and as some think, this is the utmost origin of the Jordan. We know it's not just as some think. This is the first of three springs that come together to create the Jordan River. Josephus describes it as being so deep that you couldn't get to the bottom of it. No, no matter how they measured it, it was so deep. And so earthquakes have adjusted that. Take the, let's go back to the screen. The, the, the picture there, this, uh, the, the cave there, when you went in there, earthquakes have hit and uh, have adjusted everything in this area. And now the spring actually comes out further. But this is a spring. Every winter, the, the snow on Mount Hermon melts and feeds this spring. And it runs all year round. But during the, the, at that point when the snow melts, it's, it's a heavy rush. So they worship Bell there. At the time of Jesus, the Greeks had come in and moved the Persians out. The Persian Empire has been removed. The, the Greeks have been come in. The Romans have taken over the Greeks. And they have replaced the worship of Baal with the worship of Pan. Here's an image of Baal. Or, uh, there's, there's, yeah, don't worry about there, This is Pan. Now, you might look at his face. He's half goat, half man. Our image today of what you imagine in your mind as to, like this week when you see little kids dressed up as a devil is actually Pan. Had the horns coming out. He had the image of this. So this is who they were worshiping because this gate right here was what they called the gates of Hades. The gates of hell right there. Jesus takes them to the gates of hell. Now, I was cautious about how to show you this next thing because how they worshiped Pan is disgusting. But this is, these images are from museums. Uh, don't show it yet. I'm, I'm going to show you quick glimpses. Okay? They are edited because we're going to keep this PG. Okay? They are images that have been found that are now in, one's in the British Museum, one's in another museum in Italy. Uh, these are, I'm not trying to be disgusting or perverted, but I want you to see how they worship at this place. And here's two quick images. One, two, take it away. When Jesus took his disciples to the gates of Hades, where they were worshiping Pan, the disciples would have seen with their eyes that act being done. 
That is how they worshipped Pan. When you think about that, and I, I realize there's kind of like this like shock, and I'm glad there is because so many times we in our closed-up world think, man, we live in a perverted society. Look at all what's going on. Look at all what's taking place. We can't, we, there's no way we should ever go there. I just came back from New Orleans, and I went down to the French Quarter, and it's interesting. Okay? It's very, very interesting. The way people dress is interesting. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I don't need to go into detail. We think we live in a very perverted area, in a very perverted time. We don't live in anything close to what they were experiencing. And Jesus intentionally took them to the gate of Hades and pointed them at this place and said, here is where I want to ask you the question, who do you say that I am? So when you read scripture, we need to come at it and we need to have three questions. And the three questions are, what am, I, what am I being confronted with? What am I being invited into? And how do I live this out? So the first thing is, what am I being confronted with? I, I want to go back to the scripture. So Simon Peter says to Jesus, in response to him say, asking who he is, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. As he's looking at a bunch of statues made out of rock. Peter confronts all of that and says, you're not like them. You're the living God. You're the one who brings true life because everything they were looking at was what people were hoping would bring them life. They put their hope in a God and in perversion. They put their hope in this idea that if I get to this place, then, then, I'll be, then everything will be fulfilled and I'll, I'll feel good about myself and the gods will provide for me. And he says, you're not like them. You're different. You're the living God, the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus gets excited. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, Barjona. He uses, if you're, you know, when you're serious with your kids, you use both their names. This is Jesus is being like excited and, and very serious. He's like, Simon, Barjona, you got it. Blessed are you. This blessed is joy filled. You have figured it out. You've got it. There's fulfillment here. And he says to him, you have been revealed, but my father, this has been revealed to you, not by flesh and blood, but by my father who is in heaven. This is something that's finally clicked. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, on this rock. Now this on, and some translations put it upon this rock, is the word epi. Some translations do, I think, a better job because epi means against. See, Jesus specifically at this place at Caesarea Philippi that worshiped the God of Pan, the God of perversion, the God that was about debauchery and, and, and all this that was going on, he says, in contrast to that, against that, I am going to build my church. This is what Jesus is confronting them with. He takes them to this place and says, against that, I am going to show you that I'm going to build my, my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. The gates of hell. He's pointing to what those people worshipped as the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Jesus does something here that we don't see him do up to this point. He is transitioning them. He says, listen, you're now 
on the offensive. See, the gates don't move. Gates are for defense. He says, you're not supposed to be defensive. You're supposed to be offensive. And I want you to go against what you see. Oh, yeah. See, this is where some Bible thumpers, you know who I'm talking about, get excited. Like, yep. See, I told you. The word of God is going to take you down. It's against you. Yes, it is. You're going to H-E double hockey sticks. Uh-huh. This is, and I, I joke because I, I hate this concept. Because Jesus then demonstrates for them how you're supposed to be against it. He says, let me show you the keys of heaven. The access that they need. The thing that they need to get out of the depravity and the perversion and everything that they need, I'm going to give you access to it. Do you remember the first time you got keys to your car? <laughs> what did it give you? It gave you access, right? How many of you are at the position in your life where you have an office? You're no longer in a cubicle. You have an office, and they gave you keys to your office mm -hmm, because you had access to it. You, you remember, like, when you buy a house, they give you the keys. It's a, it's a big deal. You get sit down, and you sign a bunch of papers, and you don't know anything that they say, and then you're like, I hope I'm right. Uh, and then they give you keys because it gives you access. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you access to something. I will give you, future tense, the keys. And then he goes on and says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is he saying? He's repeating the prayer he already taught them to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your responsibility is to open up the access to heaven and make it start happening here. This is what he's trying to teach them. This picture, that, that this world, that he showed, showed them that graph. Uh, this is the, the best illustration that, that everything that, that, is, that you see at the, against this, this rock face that is demonstrating everything that is, the world has to offer, I'm against that. But I want you to overcome that, and the new creation is going to overcome the old creation, and it's your responsibility as the church to bring that forth. This is heavy stuff. This is really heavy stuff. He says the keys of whatever you bind on earth. So here, here's what the first thing that's being confronted is this. When you understand, and this is in your notes, when you understand who the Messiah is, you will understand who the church is supposed to be. When you understand who Jesus is, you'll understand who the church is supposed to be. And then he turns them to Jerusalem. They have fun over there. <laughs> he says he turns them from, from this, all this training, and he says, hey, I'm going to teach you how to love and go against that. And he turns them to Jerusalem and says, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to lay myself down. I'm going to make myself a servant. Even though I'm God in the flesh, I'm going to let myself be crucified. And even though I'm in this position of all authority, and I could call angels down, but I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and the scribes and the Pharisees and all of them are going to, they're going to crucify me. See, it's, it's not an against that's a war of fist. It's 
not a war of words. It's a war of love and service. See, when he says, you need to be against that, he doesn't say, I want you to fight it. I want you to love it. I want you to serve it. And I brought you here to see who you needed to love and who you needed to serve. Now let me show you how to do it. So he confronts them with this. And so the question is, what, what are you being invited into? You're being invited, number one, to be rescued. See, Paul hits this real heavy and real well when he says, hey, some of you, he's talking to the church, he's writing to the church, and he says, some of you, you think you got it all together, but you once were that. You once were that. See, Jesus is looking across, and he sees all this, and he goes, I'm going to rescue them. You know who he's talking about when he says, I'm going to rescue them? Me and you. This room. That's who he died for. When he went to that cross, he went on a rescue story. And he says, I'm going to that cross to rescue those that are against me. And I'm going to do it with love and service. Let me show you how. And once you become part of the, res the rescued, then you join the rescue story because you're invited to be in the story of rescuing others. That you join the story by opening doors. The keys of heaven, of the kingdom of heaven, will be yours. See, he says, I, I want you to be a part of this. I'm going to teach you how to be part of this. So, how do I do that? How do I live this out? Jesus takes this next part of the verse. He goes into Luke chapter, verse 24, after Peter is going, no, 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 no. That can't happen. No, 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 you can't do it that way. And Jesus looks at him and says, get away from me, get behind me, Satan. You're only thinking of yourself. And then he teaches them, don't be, like your, don't be all about yourself, but pick up your cross and follow me, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. See, I could keep reading, he basically repeats himself over and over again to illustrate and emphasize this. When you fall in love with Jesus and you realize that he's come to rescue you, you can't help but go help rescue others. You're going to do everything you can to help others be rescued. You're going to give up your life, whatever the cost is. And, and here Matthew makes a turn in how he addresses the kingdom of heaven. And next week we're going to see how he tells them how to be the greatest <laughs> by being the least. And he's going to get into a, a point where he's going to say, how do you do this for the, for the sake of the kingdom? And over and over Jesus is just repeating the same thing. You've got to give up yourself because when you get over yourself, you'll find the blessedness that Peter has realized. That when you go after him, that's when you'll be fulfilled in your purpose. You'll be fulfilled in your purpose.